By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of a new kitchen package of state-of-the-art appliances with innovations to make everything from meal prep to cleanup easier. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. Bring on spring with savings on select kitchen appliances in-store and online at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The life of pirates has intrigued the imagination of many throughout the years. Sailing the high seas and attacking vessels to pillage and plunder, often accompanied with extreme violence. After successful raids and attacks, pirate tales would describe massive celebrations with plenty of alcohol, regaling past and present exploits. But if a group of pirates became too successful, the attention would attract bounties to bring them to justice and re-establish law and order within their territory. Privateering, however, authorized during wartime, legalized piracy during periods of conflict. England, for instance, may delegate combat privileges to any private citizen or vessel acting on behalf of the countryland. Any prizes gained in victory are earned on behalf of the captain, crew, sponsors of the ship, and the sovereign nation granting the commission allowing for privateering. This form of legal piracy cultivated a more significant force during warfare. It allowed a wider distribution of assets than what is available with the conventional naval forces, at no cost to the nation itself. It is during just such a time that today's story takes place. The year is 1704, and Alexander Selkirk signed up as a sailing master on the Sink Ports, an English vessel under commission by the King of England during the War of Spanish Succession. In years prior, Selkirk had joined buccaneering voyages. Buccaneering is a more pleasant-sounding term for piracy, and was usually the term used for pirates in the Caribbean. The Caribbean was far away from governing authorities frowning on such activity, and there were many benefits to reap from this line of work. But this voyage was different. During this voyage, the vessels had received letters of marque authorizing privateering on behalf of the English crown and added legal legitimacy to their journey. Selkirk was 28 years old, was a troublesome and unruly youth and young adult. He often escaped the consequences of his conduct by joining a sailing ship for long voyages. By the time he set sail in 1703, he was an accomplished sailor, earning his rank as sailing master. The lead ship was the St. George 320-ton with 22 cannons commanded by English privateer and explorer William Dampier. Captain Charles Pickering took charge of the 120-ton sink ports under Dampier. They left England, but their voyage began poorly. Disease and scurvy afflicted the ships, which they battled constantly. As they traveled south through the North and South Atlantic Ocean, Captain Pickering grew ill with fever and passed away. Pickering's first lieutenant, Thomas Stradling, 21 years old, brash and arrogant, took over command of the sink ports. The crew was not happy with their new commander. 
Rounding Cape Horn at the southern tip of South America under stormy conditions, things only got worse. Entering the South Pacific should have been an exciting new phase of the voyage, but it was not to be. The small fleet soon encountered the St. Joseph, a well-armed French vessel, an ally of the Spanish. A long battle ensued with the St. Joseph escaping and then alerting the Spanish of their presence in the area. A raid on the gold mining town in Panama, Santa Maria, failed when their landing party was ambushed and they had to retreat back to their ships. However, things began to look up when they encountered the merchant ship Asuncion, with its holds filled with supplies and goods. It was an easy capture, and the small fleet restocked with the captured goods. Alex Selkirk was assigned command of the prize ship, and the crews envisioned sharing the proceeds from the captured ship. But those dreams were short-lived, as Captain Dampier decided the vessel was not worth the effort of crewing and maintaining, so they abandoned it, setting the ship adrift. Soon after, acting Captain Stradling decided they could do better off independently and separated from Captain Dampier and the St. George. The next few months of sailing proved uneventful in conflicts and conquests, but the ship leaked continually, requiring near-constant pumping by the crew. Stradling brought the sink ports to the Juan Fernandez Archipelago, a small group of uninhabited islands just more than 400 miles off the coast of Chile. The ship landed, hoping to replenish with fresh water and perhaps fresh meat and other supplies. Also to rest and rid the crew of sickness, which included typhus, dysentery, and cholera, as well as scurvy. Shore parties stocked up on goats, turnips, and crayfish. They stayed a month, with little progress or intent to make extensive repairs to the vessel. Selkirk was highly concerned about the sink port's condition, leaking, the hull and masts worn ridden, and the crew recovering from long-term illnesses. Selkirk wanted an extended layover to make repairs to the ship to improve its seaworthiness. Captain Stradling disagreed with Selkirk's assessment, but Selkirk was insistent proclaiming he would rather stay at Juan Fernandez than risk continuing the journey in a deteriorating ship. Hopeful that the crew would join him in mutiny, Selkirk found himself alone in his protests. Stradling took Selkirk up on his offer and deposited Selkirk on the shore with only a few supplies, some clothes, bedding, a Bible, a knife, cooking pot, a hatchet, musket, a little tobacco, a pitiful amount of food, and his personal navigation instruments. With panic creeping up on him, Selkirk immediately regretted his decision and asked to return, begging for it. He was wadding out toward the ship, pleading to be let back on aboard the vessel, imploring for forgiveness. But Stradling refused, intending to make an example of him for questioning his decisions. Such harsh treatment would prevent further discontent from the rest of his crew and cemented the opinion that he was a tyrant. Selkirk watched the sink ports sail away from the island. He felt a deep sense of dread. He regretted his rash declaration. Loneliness swept over him, filling him with despair. During his first months on the island, Selkirk contemplated suicide. 
He had only a few supplies, and he stayed on the island's shore, scanning the horizon frequently for ships and away off the island. He hunted spiny lobster to eat and was quite miserable, endlessly searching the empty sea. It wasn't long until sea lions began to gather on the seashore during their mating season. They were rowdy and boisterous, and he decided to move inland to escape their constant, rambunctious behavior that went on throughout the day and continued all night. When he left the beaches, he discovered many resources he had not expected. Feral goats populated the island, left by sailors from the past. The goats provided him with fresh milk and meat, culled with the use of his musket. Interior vegetation also provided ample varieties of food. He found wild turnips and cabbage trees. Skynus trees, commonly called pepper trees, yielded pink peppercorns and allowed him seasonings for food preparation. Rats were also present inland, and at night he would be attacked by them. But feral cats were also present on the island. Once he managed to find a nearby colony, he fed and befriended them, and the rats stayed away. It was here Selkirk built two huts, one for cooking and one for sleeping. He became quite comfortable, had a variety of food, and even managed to scavenge items that washed up on the island. The remains of a barrel provided metal hoops, which he managed to craft a knife from using his materials. As the weeks turned to months, his supply of gunpowder diminished. He turned to chase down the goats, using his cunning and quickness to capture and kill them. He was chasing down a goat on a nearby cliff on one such occasion, and both he and his quarry slipped over the edge. He landed hard on his quarry and remained to lay there for a whole day, unable to move and badly bruised. He vowed to be more careful, as an injury more serious would surely cost him his life. The goats provided him with clothing as well. The environment soon claimed his original garments, and he leaned on his childhood knowledge gained from his father, a tanner. He utilized goat skins and hides for new clothes, crafting a needle from a scavenged nail from debris washed up on shore. He took comfort from reading the Bible. He sang the Psalms for entertainment, uplifting his spirits and maintaining his English verbal skills, which he found began to deteriorate without anyone to speak with. There were two occasions when a sailing vessel stopped at Juan Fernandez, but both were Spanish vessels. Selkirk knew he could not risk being found by the enemies of England and decided to hide from the explorers. One incident was uneventful, and he successfully evaded detection. In the other, though, he was spotted, and the shore party searched the island's interior for the stranger on the isle. He climbed a tall tree to wait out the search. At one point, members of the search party relieved themselves at the tree's base, not knowing their prey was above them. They eventually gave up, and their ship sailed away from the island. The months turned to years. Selkirk remained on the island and searched for passing ships, but was basically content, well-fed, and in good health. Four years and four months after being left on the island, he spotted two English vessels approaching the island. He was overjoyed. 
It was February 2nd, 1709. The lead ship was the Duke, commanded by Captain Woods Rogers, and piloted by his former commander, William Dampier, the man with whom he left England so many years ago. The Duke was accompanied by the Duchess, commanded by Thomas Dover, who led the shore party to pick up Selkirk. Rogers was highly impressed by Selkirk, his physical and mental condition, and his resiliency. Not only was Selkirk rescued, but he was offered a position as the second mate on board the Duke. Selkirk readily and gladly accepted. Selkirk sailed on with the privateers, eventually returning to England eight years after his initial departure. He became quite a sensation, and his adventures were widely publicized. But within months of his arrival in London, Selkirk returned to his troublesome and unruly behavior. He found himself joining up with the Royal Navy as master's mate on board HMS Weymouth to patrol for pirates off the west coast of Africa, once again escaping from his troubles at home. But Selkirk would never return to London, though, perishing at sea from fever during an outbreak of yellow fever and typhoid that afflicted the entire voyage. Selkirk was buried at sea on December 13, 1721. You may wonder what happened to the sink ports after leaving Selkirk alone on the island. Selkirk was correct in his assessment of the ship's condition. It was unseaworthy and floundered off the coast of Colombia. Stradling and some of his men survived, but were captured and forced to surrender to the Spanish. They were transported to Peru and imprisoned in harsh conditions. Selkirk's tale may sound familiar. As we stated previously upon returning to England, news of his abandonment and survival was publicized widely. Selkirk's adventures eventually became the basis and inspiration for Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Wild. Ian Scotto narrated today's episode. Thank you for tuning in to another exciting installment of In the Wild. To hear more captivating stories of real-life survival, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay prepared because you never know when you may find yourself in the wild. <laughs>